Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 10, we will read here in just a moment, verses 5 through 13. While you're turning, a couple of things. One is uh, next weekend we will worship and celebrating the Lord's Supper together, so please be mindful of that and uh, encourage the confession of sin throughout the week in preparation. One additional thing, um, I've been uh, greatly encouraged by um, the crew that's been coming out on Wednesday nights uh, for worship. It's been a, a pretty large group. I think there were a, a couple few Wednesdays ago that there was uh, almost the entire church that came out on a Wednesday night. It was very encouraging. Uh, kind of inspired me to, to take a sermon series that I was going to do on a Lord's Day uh, sermon and, and bring it to a Wednesday night, uh, knowing that it would have a great deal of um, many ears would get to hear it. So uh, coming up here in, in a couple few weeks, I'm going to begin a series on Wednesday nights in the law and particularly looking at some of those difficult parts of the law at Sinai, the law of Moses. Um, some of those parts of the judicial law, for instance, that when you're reading, there are some parts of that law that by our modern day sentiments make us squirm a little bit and think, how is this righteous? Well, we're going to take a look at some of those things. I found with many of them five, ten minutes of explanation and they can make sense. We're going to take a series through some of those and I'm commending you, encouraging you to come on out and to benefit from the labor that's going to go into that work. Romans 10. Let's begin in verse 5. We looked at the first point last week in verses 1 through 4. 5 through 13 is the second point of the text. Let's read it. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves. Thank you for the plan of redemption. And I ask God now, that you will glorify your name by giving us a greater understanding of this redemption that you have accomplished and the gospel that tells us of this. Help me to glorify you 
by preaching and preaching with accuracy and truth and faithfulness and all of us to glorify you as we consider the words, the truths, and we receive them and delight in them. Lord Jesus, glorify your name. Help me to glorify you by preaching of what you have done, the glorious message, and all of us to worship you and exalt you by hearing of what you have done, delighting, rejoicing, believing, worshiping you. Spirit, please give me help in this, O God. Bless our little ones in the next room. We pray you will magnify your word there and that you will awaken their souls to understand and believe and be saved and sanctified. And we pray that that'll happen all through this place this morning, oh God. Uh, give help now, we ask. And we lift it up in the name of our Savior. Amen. Spread throughout the mountains of Asia, there are hundreds of Buddhist temples that are sometimes carved into the sides of cliffs, sometimes which sit atop the peaks. In China alone, there are more than 90 of these Buddhist temples. In India, uh, some of these temples are uh, carved into the Himalayan mountains, and in some of these cases, they are uh, overlooking or some nearly hanging over valleys thousands of feet below them, set in beautiful locations meant to be able to look at these views. In many of these temples, there's a cloud of incense that never dissipates because incense is always being offered. Some of these temples were built a full thousand years ago and constructed with craftsmanship that by modern day standards would take many millions of dollars in order to accomplish. One of the most uh, remarkable of these Buddhist temples sits at the top of, and I'm sure I won't get this pronunciation correct, but the Fanjing Shan Mountain in China. Now, this mountain is not like um, what your mind may picture when I say the word mountain and you picture maybe a pyramid shape. This mountain is very different. This uh, uh, has a almost sheer vertical rise going straight up. Uh, such a steep incline that no vehicle or animal uh, can ascend to the top of this. It has to be traveled by foot and those which visit must climb 8,800 and 88 steps to come to the top. 8,888 steps switchbacking up this almost vertical rise in order to reach the top. And then if you come to the top, there are monks who live in these mountains who have devoted their existence to enlightenment. Enlightenment. These monks may spend a lifetime living up on top of a mountain, all of their effort, all of their life devoted to this meditation, pursuing some secret wisdom, trying to come to enlightenment. Every year, many millions visit these temples 
That, that's a real number, by the way. That's not me just like throwing out an exaggerated something there. No, no, there's actually one temple in China that receives two million visitors a year. You spread throughout these hundreds of temples. There are many millions who visit. And of course, a great deal of them are there just as tourists and wanting to see cool sites. But a great many, many millions of them travel there trying to seek a little slice of enlightenment themselves. There's something in man's heart that thinks that getting right, finding God, getting spiritual, discovering religion, getting in touch with myself or whatever other kind of cliches get uh, thrown out there means I need to, I need to go. I need to sail across the sea to some distant place. I need to uh, go on a quest. I need to climb a mountain. I need to do something. I need to climb the 8,888 steps and visit with these monks who have totally figured out this enlightenment thing. Sail across the sea to find some secret wisdom. I need to go. I need to do. I need a quest. And that is why the offer of the gospel, that the salvation that has been purchased by Christ is available to you, not by going, not by questing, not by doing, but by receiving. Receiving on the basis of faith is seen as foolishness by the world. Romans 10 says, do not say in your heart, I need to go, I need to climb, I need to sail, I need to do. Instead, salvation is near to you. It is as near to you as the words of the gospel that you hear. We have been working through this section here, and last week we saw the first point of chapter 10 in verses 1 through 4 in showing us that you must be righteous to be right with God in order to have eternal life, but you, have, you and I have not been able to accomplish righteousness by our own works, by our own deeds, but there's a righteousness available to you. There's a right standing that is available that you can receive and receive it by faith. Point number two in verses five through 13 builds on that previous point to say, therefore, okay, so building on the previous point, because salvation comes by faith, righteousness is available to you by faith. Therefore, whoever believes, anyone who believes, all who believe, anywhere they believe, on the Lord Jesus will be saved. So we're going to spend this morning working through this second point. If you want to write it down briefly, it would be, therefore, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. And we're going to spend our time. I'm going to work us through these verses so that we come to understand it. So back up to verse five again, and let's make our way through. Here is the argument uh, of verse five. Moses wrote in the law, so the, the law at Sinai, the law of Moses, that whoever would keep the law, whoever would be righteous by perfect and full and complete law keeping, law keeping without ever stumbling, 
that person would indeed live, live by that righteousness. So where is it that Moses uh, said that? Well, it actually comes up several times in the Old Testament. Uh, I'm going to jump to Leviticus 18 for a moment. You can jump there if you want, but I'm just going to read a passage. Leviticus 18, the first five verses. This is one place he says it. I'll read a little bit further just to get a bit of context. It's verses four and five that specifically emphasize it. But starting in verse one there, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord, your God. And then, and then watch the emphasis on the word live here in verse five. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. There's other places in the Old Testament where that exact same message is, is told. E Ezekiel 20, it comes up again in the prophets, for instance, that God said that this is, this is the equation. Keep my law and live. Man in our uh, prideful arrogance hears that and goes, sweet, got it. What the Bible goes to show us, though, is no, 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 you, you, you may have misunderstood what I said. I said, keep my law and live. And by keep, I mean all of my law. Paul makes this point in the New Testament uh, numerous times. One of those places is in Galatians 3. Um, if you remember in Galatians, it's, it's ironically a situation where there was a group of Christians who had believed in the Lord Jesus, but the Judaizers, those heretics, had seduced these Christians, at least some of them, to fall to an error. And so they believed on Jesus. Uh, these were Gentile Christians, and they wanted to place themselves underneath the law, place themselves underneath the covenant of the law at Sinai. And so Paul makes the argument to them, uh, you want to place yourself under the covenant of law? Okay, go ahead and try but here's something you need to know. If you're going to be under the covenant of law, you are obligated to keep all of it. If that's where you're going to get your righteousness, then you have got to be all the way complete. So uh, in Galatians 3, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. And I do want you to remember at least the chapter, Deuteronomy 27. Let me read it to you. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And Paul emphasizes that all. If your righteousness is going to come from the law, then it has to be a it has to be a law keeping that keeps every jot and tittle every single command down to the, the smallest that is thought of and reaching, uh, f accomplishing the full measure of what each one of those commandments would be. Like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we, 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 gotta, we gotta clarify here so that it is, it is abundantly clear. The law keeping that God demands is perfect law keeping. Now, if you're new to studying the Bible, and you're just joining us, you may be really depressed right now, <laughs> okay? Because you're thinking, you know, number one, modern man wants to crowd and say, that's not fair. That's not fair, okay? Um, God, should, uh, God should only give the standard that I say that he should. Do you see a problem with that? 
okay? Murderers, gang members telling the courts, you should make your standard what I think your standard should be. There's a problem there. God is the sovereign. God is the ruler. It is righteous for God to demand a perfection, okay? In all the cosmos, in what God created, he created righteousness. God created this world in a state of righteousness, harmony, and goodness. You and I were created in Adam, okay? Our first parents were created righteous and holy. That was the standard we were given. It is right of God to demand this. But if you are new and hearing this and depressed, the good news is coming. But verse 5, we will not understand the good news unless we understand the bad news, okay? So verse five is bad news, not because God's principle is bad. Verse five is bad news because you are bad and I am bad. God demands perfect law keeping. You and I cannot live up to that perfect and complete law keeping. But you, you, we're not gonna understand the Bible. We're not gonna understand God. We're not gonna understand this world unless we understand this principle. We were born under law. The situation is keep the law and you will live. Disobey and you will die. You and I have disobeyed. And next, I want you to consider what it means to live. So when he says here that Moses writes in the law that whoever keeps the law will live by that law, by that righteousness, that, that, that phrase could be misunderstood. Here is what is meant. It is meant that you will have life because of that righteousness. In the garden, God said uh, to Adam and Eve, uh, in the day you eat of this particular tree, you will surely die. You know the story, Adam and Eve ate, but they did not die. So what does that mean? Was God not serious? Did God uh, relent? Did God think better? Uh, maybe I spoke too hastily there. I shouldn't have said in the day that you eat, you will surely die. Was God not serious? Was God speaking loosely in that? No, we learn in scripture, Adam and Eve did die on the day that they ate of the tree. Their bodies did not die, but we learn in the Bible that life and death is different than just what happens to the body. This body is replaceable. The soul is eternal. You have a soul that will last forever. Your soul is eternal. Uh, the body's replaceable, the soul is not. So when the Bible speaks of life and death, you need to understand that it is speaking of something bigger and longer than just how we often speak of the body. There is life with a capital L and death with a capital D. Life with a capital L is that full and true life indeed. That is the fullest definition of being attached to God, uh, connected to God, the source of life, the fountain of life, and that results in eternal life. Death with a capital D, the book of Revelation also calls the second death, this, it is possible for the body to be alive, but the soul to be dead to God. Where you, are, you may feel very alive. You might even have days you feel very energetic, but you are detached from God. You do not have eternal life flowing through your spiritual veins. You are on your way to becoming a recipient 
of eternal death. But when we say this eternal death, don't misunderstand. Eternal death does not mean that your soul will be annihilated or that your soul will cease or that your soul will sleep. Those who are experiencing spiritual eternal death right now in hell, they're fully awake, fully alert, fully conscious. They're thinking, but it is a place where whatever body it is that they have right now, and of course that is mysterious, but with whatever body they have right now, the fire never consumes. The worm never finishes feasting. It is an eternal state of misery detached from all that God means true life to be. You must be righteous in order to have life with a capital L, in order to have eternal life. That was available and possible through uh, obedience to God, through the law, by keeping the law. But you and I have, okay, that ship sailed. We have fallen to that because we were not able to keep the law with completion. The plan of redemption is what God has done in his son to make a way for another righteousness, another uh, right standing with God, still based on a law keeping, but not our law keeping. A righteousness is available to you, but by faith in Jesus. It comes on the basis of faith. So watch how this is worked out in these next few verses. In verses six through eight, it, it actually is a little bit tricky the way that it's worded. And as, as, as we read it, you know, so if you're just reading it quickly, like in your Bible reading and you're trying to get through several chapters and we read through it quickly, we would come away from the whole passage with the main idea intact. The main idea, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That part is abundantly clear. But actually, the, the logical argument, because it is happening once again, the, the, the reasoning that Paul is working out here can be a little bit tricky when we go back to um, the, the passage that Paul is quoting. And by the way, yes, he means us. When he quotes an Old Testament passage, he means for us to go back and to read it, not just to hear this, but to go back and read the passage. It's a little bit tricky. Let, let's turn back there, if you will. It's Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. There's a reason why a moment ago I wanted you to remember Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27 shows you and I, mankind, cannot keep the law of God. But now we're going to read Deuteronomy 30, and it, uh, it will provoke some questions, and it's actually in the question, in the answer to the mystery, where the whole purpose of this is found. So, a lot of times this is the way the Bible works. We're left with a question, we look at it sideways, and you got to keep thinking, keep looking. Paul gives us the New Testament interpretation to show us, here's the answer to the mystery. Deuteronomy 30, start in verse 11. For this commandment, which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. You see the question arising. Deuteronomy 27 said, the law is too, too difficult for you. It is out of your reach. You cannot keep it. You, you cannot escape the curse because you cannot keep the whole thing. Now Deuteronomy 30, you know, three chapters later comes along and says, 
These commandments, and by the way, that is what is being talked about, all these commandments, that they're, that it's not too difficult for you. It is within your reach. Well, let's keep reading. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get, for, for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments that you may live and multiply and that the, uh, the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you're crossing the Jordan to enter it and possess it. I call heaven and earth earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants. The point from Deuteronomy 30 is that the law is doable and keepable. So the obvious question here is, how are we supposed to understand this? We've got all of these passages like Deuteronomy 27, Galatians 3, Ezekiel 20, and by the way, a lot more that show us we cannot keep the law and have righteousness based on our own. But Deuteronomy 30 is preaching there is a law keeping that is not beyond your reach. There is a righteousness that is available to you. So how does it work out? You can see it's, it's kind of tricky. The Bible actually does this kind of thing a lot. It really does. A mystery in the Old Testament, something that seems like a contradiction is left a mystery in the Old Testament and it's not till Christ came and pulled back the curtains and the New Testament uh, shows us how these things are worked out that the mysteries become clear. This is exactly like Okay, I'm going to take a parenthesis here. This is exactly like another Old Testament mystery. This is exactly like that time that Moses prayed and asked God to show him his glory. God said to Moses, no man can see my face and live, but I will let you see a portion of my glory. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll pass by. You can see a part and I will speak my name. So this happens. God passes by and God speaks his name and God says, the Lord, okay, so this is the divine name, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Now listen to these last two phrases that I'm going to tell you. Who forgives iniquity, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now how do those last two phrases synchronize together? He forgives the iniquity, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. How can those two things be true at the same time? Okay, this is one of those Old Testament mysteries. And the answer is Christ. The answer is Christ. 
Because in Christ, our guilt is removed and therefore we are no longer guilty before God. God can both forgive iniquity and also not punish the guilty uh, in that sense uh, that their guilt is removed from us. Moments like that are all over the Old Testament. A mystery and two things that seem like they would be a contradiction. But we see in Christ how they are solved. What Paul does in Romans 10 is in a sense, he takes Deuteronomy 30 and he preaches it and shows how it is fulfilled and how Christ has brought the answer to the mystery. So here's how it works. You, by your own strength and left to yourself, you cannot keep the law. Deuteronomy 27. You cannot keep the law. And if you don't, and if you do not keep the law, you have no righteousness. If you have no righteousness, you are doomed. But Deuteronomy 30 says, there is a law keeping that is available to you. There is a righteousness that can be yours. It's within your reach. It's not too difficult for you. Now, pause there for a second. That in itself could be misunderstood. Okay. Moses says there's a law keeping that is available to you. It's not too hard for you. That could be misunderstood. Somebody could rip that out of context and basically say that it's, bas- it's saying what popular religion says. Popular religion right now basically says everybody's okay because everybody's good. We, we can all be good enough. Just try. Just be sincere. That kind of thing. But, but that's not what's being taught. We have all these passages that showing you and I do not measure up. There is a law keeping that is within your reach. So what is it? What must I do? This is the question everyone should be asking. This is what the rich young ruler asked Jesus. This is what the Philippian jeweler, uh, jailer asked the apostles. This is what anyone awakened to even an ounce of wisdom ask. What must I do to have eternal Life, And here's where man's heart goes. Do I need to slay a dragon somewhere to save a bunch of people? Do I need to climb some mountain to find a secret enlightenment? Do I need to sail across the sea to find some secret wisdom to, to bring it back? Do I need to rescue a certain number of orphans? Do I need to pray a certain number of times, attend church a certain number of days? Is there a certain number of good works whose weight I must accomplish? And the answer is no, no, no. God does not require you to slay a dragon, uh, uh, rescue a certain number of orphans, say a certain number of prayers. Salvation is near to you. It's near to you. It is as near to you as the words on your lips and the words you hear in your ears. You do not need to say to yourself, I need to ascend up into heaven to find this secret righteousness and bring it down. You do not need to do that. And do you know why? Because heaven came down to you. You do not need to say to yourself, I need to descend into the abyss, the secret parts of the earth. And there were, you know, Greek stories about this kind of thing, descending into the lower regions in order to bring up some, some secret righteousness or something. You do not need to say to yourself, I need to descend. Do you know why? Because the grave rose up. Heaven came down and the grave has risen up. Incarnation, resurrection. Incarnation, 
Jesus, the divine son of God, took flesh and descended, left the throne to come to the earth incarnation and then resurrection Jesus the Messiah who died as the guilt offering for sin in order to make atonement rose from the dead after accomplishing redemption heaven has come down and the grave has risen up in the person of Jesus and what do both of those directions have in common heaven came down and the grave has risen up what do both of those directions have in common they've come to you. So in other words, do you hear the message? You do not need to say to yourself, I need to go. Salvation is near to you. If you are hearing these words this morning, these words of the gospel, our message to you is the message of the Bible. And the message of the Bible is not a big pep talk to say, listen, you need to go perform a whole bunch of righteousness starting now. So I'm going to get you fired up. You're going to walk out these doors. You're going to go on with your life and you're going to do good deeds, good deeds, good deeds, and then accumulate a big weight so that you will be right with God. And then you will be saved. The message of the gospel is you can be saved right where you are right now. Hear the words, words, the message of the gospel and believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus by hearing of the message of Jesus and you will be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. It is not a call, go ascend the 8,888 steps and find a secret enlightenment. There is a law keeping that is available to you. It is the law keeping of Jesus. It is significant that Jesus lived as a man, that he did not come to the earth for merely one day to die for atonement. He lived a life of a man and he kept the law of God and by substitute his law keeping, his righteousness will be counted as yours. It's like a robe of righteousness can be wrapped around you and Jesus took your sins onto himself. The salvation is as near to you as the words you are hearing right now. The words are reverberating in your eardrums. Words on your lips. I am emphasizing these words, and that's going to become important throughout the rest of, uh, of chapter 10 of Romans. Words. Because you have to understand, you and I needed Jesus to come and accomplish what he did. But if Jesus had come and accomplished what he did and you never heard about it, words never reached you telling you about him, you would not trust in him. You would not receive him. So you and I have needed both Jesus to come and the message of the gospel to reach your ears. The, the words that you hear, you know, by the way, you can't get closer than the words in your ears and in your lips. How, how close is salvation to you? The next county over? The next country? It's as near to you as the words in your ear. The words on your lips. They are the words of the gospel. The words of the message of Jesus. Words that you hear and believe. This is what is being preached. Jesus is the missing piece 
that makes sense of every Old Testament puzzle that was once unfinished and unrealized. And what Paul does in Romans 10 here is he preaches Deuteronomy 30 and shows it's Christ. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's how there's a law keeping available to you. And then notice verse 8 as he says it, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then look at this last phrase here. So that's this last phrase is not Paul quoting Deuteronomy 30. It's him preaching an interpretation of this. That is, and I picture Paul shouting at this moment, okay? Um, remember that the book of Romans was given by dictation. Paul spoke it and Tertius, his, uh, one of the workers with him, he wrote down what Paul would speak. I picture Paul shouting this at this moment. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's the word you must hear. It is the message of the gospel. So six through eight is preaching this message of salvation by faith and doing so from the Old Testament. Now come to verses nine and 10. I'm going to slow down a, a bit here and get a little bit more particular in thinking through some of the things with the, uh, the rest of the passage here. Look at nine and 10 once again. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Here is your answer. If you are in a conversation and someone asks you, what must I do? This is one of the very helpful places from the Bible to bring them. If you only memorized one place in the entire Bible uh, in order to use as to call to your mind when you're sharing the gospel, this could be one of those that you would bring them to. Now, is there more that might need to be talked through? Sure. Because a person might not understand who Jesus is. The true Jesus, not the Jesus of imagination, not the Jesus of a, a fictitious heresy, but you might have to do some explaining. Here is who the true Jesus is. He is the divine son of God. He is Lord. And then a person might not understand what is meant by the word believe. We find a great deal of confusion exists in our culture over this because many think that believe to be saved means only to acknowledge that he exists. No, the, the biblical definition of saving faith is a trust in the Lord Jesus. It is to rest your weight. It is to hang your hope from the Lord Jesus. And then someone might not understand what is meant by the confession of the mouth, Jesus as Lord. Um, but let me, let, let, let's look at this and there's some things we need to consider. Again, reading it quickly straightforward message. But there is a little bit of trickiness in this once again, and I want to make sure we understand it. In verses 9 and 10, you notice he brings up the mouth and the heart. If he had only mentioned the heart, I don't think there would be any confusion. You believe with your heart, your, your figurative heart, not your physical, literal heart in that sense, but the, the inner man, you trust in Christ from within, believe, faith. We get that. We talk about that every single week. There's not a week that goes by that we do not address faith in this sense. 
But there is something that we don't talk about all the time. And that's what he mentions here about confess Jesus as Lord. This verse says, confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and, and you will be saved. So let me, let me ask a question for consideration and then I'm going to answer it. Does that mean then that this is a requirement for salvation? Well, I, I don't believe that's the intention of what's being said here. I don't believe that's the intention. Some have taken this, however, um, this, this one place, and it is one place, okay? This, this, this talk about confessing with your mouth. Some have taken it to say that in order to be saved, you must have some way that you get in front of people and you say the words, Jesus is Lord. And you're not saved unless you do this. This is part of the reason why um, some are so um, adamant about the use of an altar call at the end of a service, for instance. Now, um, I'm not opposed to altar calls per se. Okay. You know that we do things a little bit differently here. Uh, typically, the invitation that I give is find me after the service and let's talk. Um, I'm not opposed, however, to an altar call that's done in a right kind of way and not manipulative. Um, if you don't know what I mean by altar call, okay, I'm okay with that too. Okay, if your entire Christian life has just been here, you don't know what an altar call is. Okay, an altar call is at the end of a service. So this has kind of become American custom. By the way, there's a there's a history into where it came about and it comes from some shady practices from Charles Finney and some things like that that you could get into. But what an altar call is, is at the end of a service, the preacher preaches the gospel at the end and then calls somebody, if you want to be saved, walk down and come talk with me. Now, not everybody who does it believes this, but some have held that this public walking forward is a necessity that this act of making it public that you're going to talk with the preacher, that's fulfilling Romans 10, 9 here. And this public way of stating you want to be saved is required for salvation. I obviously do not believe that is what the text is teaching. If that would be the case, by the way, we would need to adjust our understanding of the gospel. We would need to adjust our presentation of the gospel. Okay. Um, we would need to start preaching the gospel that it's not faith alone in Jesus alone. It's, it's faith plus verbalizing words out of your mouth. And then if someone would be paralyzed and unable to speak, unable to be public or in some way, well, sorry about your luck. Okay. The gospel is salvation by faith, salvation by faith in the Lord Jesus. Okay. But if that's the case, then why bring up the words of the mouth? Why does he say what he does here? Well, it's because of the passage he just quoted here in the subject at hand. The whole context is salvation is not out there somewhere. You got to go. It's near to you. How near to you? Words, words, words in your ear, words on your mouth. He's not preaching that confessing something with your lips is a requirement for salvation. But what he is preaching is that the word is near to you, as near to you as words. And Deuteronomy 30 brought up near to you in lips and in ears. And what are these words that ought to be rattling in our ears? And yeah, on our lips, though not a requirement for salvation, but must be believed. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is raised from the dead. Deuteronomy 30 is showing how this is fulfilled in Christ.
Now, to, to further expound on that point, okay? There was a time in Acts 10 when Paul was preaching the gospel and as he was preaching, words were falling from his lips and the hearers were receiving those words, the Holy Spirit came upon them, they believed and they were saved as Peter was speaking. Peter didn't say, well, hang on guys, you ain't saved yet, let's arrange some chairs here, uh, let's form an aisle, okay? Come on down, now you're saved. Or he wasn't waiting until they verbalized something. They were saved as they heard and believed. And so the point that I'm emphasizing here is it's by faith. This bringing up the confession is, yes, sure, Christians need to publicly state Jesus is Lord. And I would say that you need to do that in the same way that I say you need to be baptized. Okay? You need to be biblically baptized. But is that a requirement for salvation? If you trusted in Jesus and on your drive out to the lake to be baptized, if you had a wreck and died, does that mean you would go to hell? No, you would go to heaven. You're saved by faith. So when I say you need to be baptized, the word need there must be understood in the context. I don't mean need as in a requirement for salvation. Similarly, you need to confess Jesus as Lord. This needs to be on a Christian's lips and on our lips regularly. And, and by the way, we, we do, um, when folks are baptized here at this church, uh, you, you may remember one of the things we, we ask them two questions. Have you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ to be saved? And we ask him, what is your confession? That is an opportunity to make public that Jesus is Lord. But, but I, I don't believe uh, that they would go to hell uh, if somehow they got the words wrong there. You're saved by faith. Additionally, while we're on the subject, misunderstanding of this concept has also led some to confusion regarding what's commonly called the sinner's prayer. Um, if you're not familiar, someone, and, and I don't know who, um, wrote out a prayer that was meant to help somebody who's wanting to turn to Christ, express to God their faith, and ask for salvation. Uh, I have no beef with the prayer, um, no beef with leading people to pray. When I'm leading someone to, to, to faith in Christ, leading someone to salvation, I do, as part of what we do, have them pray. You pray and verbalize to God, say to God your, your, your faith in Christ and ask him to save you. But some have misunderstood this. There is a kind of segment of the evangelical world that views that sinner's prayer as kind of like magical words which bring an incantation and bring about salvation. I've, 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 been, I've been a part, I've seen some pretty manipulative youth group events and some various things where it's kind of like we just somehow got to trick the kids into saying the words, you know? You know, everybody say these words with me, you know, say the sinner's prayer. And once they state the words, Jesus is Lord, then, then, then they pronounce the whole room, y'all saved. Y'all are saved and don't ever let anybody tell you that you're not saved. You know, this kind of dangerous kind of stuff. Do you see how that's a misunderstanding of salvation? It's a misunderstanding of what salvation is and how we are saved. You are saved by faith. D do I think that you ought to verbalize that to God? I do. 
You know, if you want to be saved, you know, I think you ought to, you know, in your heart, cry out to God and tell the father you trust in his son and that, you know, you are not righteous, but you need to be forgiven of sins and ask him to save you. Uh, But if you died in the middle of the prayer, do I think that you are born again? I do. Okay. Salvation comes at the moment of faith. Um, One last thing I'll point out this week regarding the statement, Jesus is Lord. You may recall last week that I brought up, some have argued that maybe some people will be saved by Jesus, even if they don't believe in Jesus. Remember that? Okay. Um, See that what must be believed in order to be saved? Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is raised from the dead. There are at least three things in the book, or excuse me, in chapter 10, Romans 10, that puts that idea to rest. The idea that maybe God will accept other religions if they're sincere and if they believe in him, even if they don't know Jesus. No, no, no. At least three times in Romans 10 alone, it is shown faith in the person of the Lord Jesus must be present. You must believe Jesus is Lord. You must believe he is raised from the dead. Now, um, the intention is next week, God willing, uh, the plan is to come back to the statement and we're going to do a doctrinal sermon on the statement, Jesus is Lord, to more fully look at what this means. And there's actually some more in the passage that's going on concerning that. So God willing, that's the plan next week. Let's, let, we'll, we'll move on for now. Look at verses 11 to 13 again. And, and I'll remind you, this is the central idea of the whole section. Verse 11. Oh, by the way, before we read, one more thing. Look for the words, all, whoever, everyone, anyone, and see that point. Verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You notice that language of all, everyone, anyone, whoever. If salvation comes by faith and not by works, then that means anyone, everyone, whoever hears the message of the gospel and wherever they are and believes they will be saved. There is not a journey that is required and there is not a set of uh, requirements of good deeds that must be done. Anyone, everyone, all, whoever, and wherever they believe they will be saved. I want you to see that there is a wideness to the love, mercy, and grace of God. There is a wideness There is an invitation to all the ends of the earth. Now, that that language that I just used there, the wideness of God's love, um, that has been misused. Um, It has been misused by by some who preach universalism, which is the idea that everybody's saved, that God's love is so wide that everyone will be saved. But just because something's misused doesn't mean we should let them have the phrase, okay? We own it, okay? It's the Bible. There is a wideness to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. We all deserve wrath, but God has been willing to give the invitation to anyone. God has not chosen to come to those of the earth who meet a certain standard of moral goodness and only offer it to them. 
God offers it whoever, wherever. It is such a wide offer that sometimes it makes us uncomfortable who all is invited to be saved. And some of the people that we're shown are saved in the Bible and what they did. Sometimes that makes us uncomfortable, almost like we want to explain, really, you know, it's not always like that kind of thing. No, no, no. Just see, God has chosen to magnify his grace. There is a wideness to uh, the love of God. The, The gospel is the good news of salvation to anyone, everyone, whoever, all, wherever, who believes in the Lord Jesus. Whoever means whoever. That's not a complicated word for not whoever, okay? Whoever means whoever. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that for a number of reasons. Uh, the, The early Jewish Christians needed to learn this because they needed to learn to include the Gentiles in the plan of God. You and I need to remember this for other kinds of reasons. Earnest Christians Sometimes um, Christians who have temptations towards self-righteousness and spiritual arrogance sometimes have trouble with the offer to anyone, everyone, whoever believes. Sometimes have trouble with the idea that inmates in prison, people on deathbeds, prostitutes living on the streets, addicts with drugs still in their system can believe the gospel and be saved. We must remember it is whoever It is wherever that the invitation of the gospel is that wide because salvation does not come by works, but by faith. Then that means that not only anyone from any people group, any color, any language, any tribe, any tongue can be saved. It also means that anyone living in whatever immoral situation can be saved at the moment of hearing, at the moment of hearing before they clean themselves up. Sometimes that troubles some Christians with some self-righteous tendencies. Sometimes some Christians with some self-righteous tendencies want to kind of give a message of making sure, you know, I tell them to clean up first. Come to church for a little while. Get rid of your sin. Then you can be saved. But we need to understand that that is a skewed gospel. So, you know, we bear this in mind. We, we got to understand dangers on both sides of a, a skewed gospel of not tough enough versus too tough, tenderness, toughness, all these kinds of things. So understand this. We bring this up pretty often. A gospel that does not explain repentance, what it means to turn to Jesus in faith, which means an inner decision first to leave sin in the heart, repentance. A gospel that doesn't explain repentance is a skewed gospel. But another direction, it is a skewed gospel to not believe that a sinner can be saved even the moment that they hear it. I I love the example that we have in Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus got saved on the way to his house. Zacchaeus got saved before he ever did one good work. Zacchaeus uh, believed in the Lord Jesus. He turned and made made a conclusion in his heart, a decision of repentance in his heart that I'm going to make right, I'm going to pay back those people that I wronged. And Jesus said, pronounced him, today salvation has come to this man's house. He had not paid back a single penny yet. But what had happened? 
He believed and it was a submissive, repentant, true, saving faith. He hadn't done one good deed yet. He hadn't cleaned up his life yet. There was a conclusion to do so. There was a turning of true faith in his heart, but he hadn't done any cleaning up yet. So when we understand the gospel and share the gospel, it does need to be the accurate gospel. We do need to explain the necessity of repentance, but we also need to show and believe this person can be saved right now. Guys, this isn't just the kind of thing that throughout history, I could give you a couple few examples of people who've been saved out of really bad circumstances. It's every week. It's every week in this world. Convicted felons in prison get saved. Prostitutes on the street trust Christ. Children from homes so broken that by all human accounts, we, we, we think that they might turn out to be serial killers. God draws out and they trust Jesus. Even within this one little local church, there is quite a bit of example of the remarkable grace of God to save us out of who we used to be and situations we were once in. I wish I could tell you every story, but that would involve breaking confidence and things, and you understand that. But let me, let me say this, Christian, every once in a while, be open about those things. D don't hide in shame from some of those things of who you used to be. Don't hide in shame. You are magnifying the excellence of God's grace by letting people know, this is who I used to be. This is what God saved me out of. Magnify his grace. God has chosen to magnify the excellence of his grace. He demonstrates his power as well by cleaning us up over the course of time. But what we're highlighting now and what the text is highlighting is the power of his mercy, the glory of his mercy. The call is to believe now. This invitation for anyone to come and believe means there is acceptance that sinners can have that might make you uncomfortable at times. You need to believe that every sin, every sin will be forgiven except one, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And what that means is murderers, yes, rapist, yes, child molesters can be saved at the moment of faith. Believe me, that's the stuff I don't wanna bring up. I know that's uncomfortable to bring up. I'm a, I'm a dad. I, still, I get angry over that. And by, by the way, so, so, so that we clarify, it is a right thing to be angry over those kinds of things and want justice, okay? Um, it is a right thing for us to call uh, our civil law to stop being so pansified and to start executing lashings, castration, death penalty, where the law of God would show that that is appropriate. But understand that there is a difference between civil law justice and the offer of forgiveness in the gospel, okay? A, a, a Christian judge can uh, give a sentence that is righteous, but that would be painful, and then right after the trial, share the gospel with the convicted felon and give the author offer of salvation, okay? We, we must fulfill civil law justice, but we must also extend the gospel of grace and, and make clear, whoever believes, and all sin will be forgiven, except one, blasphemy, of the Holy Spirit, which is a, a very volitional kind of raising the fist in objection to the gospel. So our announcement to the world, 
is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is raised from the dead, you must be saved. This Jesus is the only one who can bring you to the Father. He is the only one who can give you the right standing that you need. Believe. Trust in Him. Hang your hope from the Lord Jesus and not from any of the other things we're always tempted to hang our security from. Don't find your security. Don't hang your hope from your money or all of the other kinds of things floating around, all the talk and all the temptations that are there, hanging your security and your hope from your guns or your president or your vaccine or your ivermectin or leaders that you think if this one was in office, everything would be okay. Stop trusting anything earthly. Stop trusting anything earthly for your ultimate security and trust Christ. There is a righteousness you need and it is in him alone invitation that I give to you is if you would like to talk more about this, find me after the service. If you want to ask questions, see more from the Bible or somebody to pray with, find me and I'd love to do that. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we magnify you and thank you for what you have done. Uh, Lord, I pray, give us fuller and deeper understanding of your gospel. And I pray that it will inspire and strengthen us, O God, that we will live as people set on fire with zeal, with love for you, uh, with evangelistic hearts. Help us, God, we pray. Please give us your blessing as we're gonna dismiss. Help us to go out and live uh, this week for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.